In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. All right, so, uh, you know, it's hard to actually talk after dinner, and especially at the end of the day, uh, trying to keep everyone engaged. Um, and as a topic of the fellowship of the sufferings of Christ, it's a tough one, and especially if that happens on the Feast of the Cross. You know, what can be said? But in continuing with what Sayyidina, you know, talked about and trying to tie in with what I try to introduce in the beginning is that when our Lord Jesus Christ came, he came to offer something to humanity that was so unique, that was so different. It was very different from what the Jews were waiting for. It was very different from what the Greeks and the Romans were waiting for. Clearly, when he came and what St. Paul talked about made a huge difference because the world was changed completely after that. And sometimes, and this is actually the one thing that I wonder with a lot, is that now, because we've gotten so familiar with what we see and read, that shock factor is gone. So I always try to ask myself the question, okay, why was our Lord Jesus Christ unique? What was different about him? What difference does he make right now? And bringing the whole point of actually knowing God that actually man always asks the question, is asking, what is the question that our Lord Jesus Christ is the universal answer to across all faiths, across all traditions, for all human beings? And you find that the one thing, because, you know, a lot of us might debate, even within the Christian field, about, you know, who was Adam? Where did he come from? A lot of faiths are a little bit different. You know, the Islamic faith, the Jewish faith, they're very different. But across the whole board, the question of suffering, human suffering, is so universal. And there is no other faith other than Christianity where divinity touches the idea of human suffering. There's no other faith that divinity comes close to human suffering as Christianity. So when I think of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of his suffering, when St. Paul talked to the Corinthians and the, the Philippians and talked about that fellowship, what does he mean by fellowship? Because for whatever it's worth, if you talk about my human instinct, I want to run away from suffering as far as I can. You know, we are actually wired with our skin that when anything suffer, like, you know, you get a pinprick and you just withdraw your hand. It is natural to run away from suffering. So why with our, you know, my full mind, with my full consent, I will go and consent to be in fellowship with his sufferings. In fact, as I look back at the last two, three years, suffering has been so prevalent. Like we haven't seen that kind across the world. And you think about it for a second. The pandemic, as hard as it was, it was the first time in our you know, generation, because probably the previous generation that actually felt that was the generation that lived in World War II, okay, where it was global. It was the first time where humanity gathered in a sense of fear, anxiety, and suffering. I vividly remember in the first, you know, weeks of the pandemic when we just didn't know what we were dealing with, when nobody had any idea. We were clueless. And everyone, like some of us, were like, you know, it's a hoax. Yeah, it's just, you know, habit <laughs> bird. 
And I remember vividly, I was on call one day, I was the uh, cath lab doc, and I get this frantic call from the ER saying, just come down here, stat. And I go down to the ER to the stable room, um, which is kind of the, the emergency room, like the main room where they do everything. And I go in and I'm expecting to go in to see this old guy, you know, having a heart attack and, you know, they're shocking him, resuscitating. My usual, got used to it over 20 years, done it every day. But I go in and I see this pregnant 36-year-old who's having a full-blown cardiac arrest. So it was like, you know, what's going on? You know, I never expected this. And the ER doc said, like, you know, she was diagnosed with COVID a couple of days ago, but she didn't want to stay in the hospital. And she was brought in by the ambulance in full cardiac arrest two days after diagnosed with COVID. And they were doing CPR and trying to resuscitate her. And almost at a point when where they're doing all this resuscitation, you know, the ER physician says, like, you know, it's not happening. We actually have what's called a Lucas device, which is basically a mechanical device doing compression on our chest because you can't sustain. Actually, any one of you doing CPR in a good way, after three, four minutes, you'll tire out. So there's a device that does that. But after, like, five, ten minutes, um, the, the ER doc was like, you know, this like, we're going to lose the baby. So he, like, called STAT, the OB doc, while she was on the device did an emergency C-section in the ED to try to get out the baby. That day, unfortunately, we lost the mother, we lost the baby. That was two weeks into the pandemic. I was crushed that day, because then, you know, I had to go out and talk to the husband. Not only he lost his wife, but he lost the baby. And I was like, you know, it's hard to make sense of that. And then all of us lived through times where all our loved ones in our, all our communities, you know, not only we saw death, but we saw actually the suffering of death. Because when you look at it, they're not the same. Death is something, but also when you suffer through that death, because at that time when people are admitted to the hospital, you know, literally, you know, somebody is like sick at home with the COVID and then they call the ambulance. Literally when the ambulance is taking them back in those days, People didn't even know whether they're going to see them again, right? So it's not only was the death, it was the isolation and the separation. But what was unique about it, it was that not that it was death and it was suffering, but it was universal. It was across the whole world. So when you think about what was the suffering our Lord Jesus Christ answering, you know, and... I'm sorry, I'm not going to do a lot of philosophy this time, I promise. But all what I want to say is that actually goes to the point that humanity has been asking that question. In fact, philosophers who don't necessarily have the answer, but they've been asking the question, have been digging very deep into that. And they start to realize that the universal common human experience that is common to all of us is basically fear of death. Should I take a different mic? Uh, this working? Oh, this is okay. So, is the fear of death? You know, one of these guys, Martin Heidegger, said that in death we realize that we've sacrificed our life for that which we have lived for. What does that mean? Well, let's say I'm a guy who's a CEO of a company, I'm a workaholic. 
I work my life to make money. I work my life to bring my company to be a Fortune 500 company, you know, to have all these employees nominated the best. I've ignored my wife, ignored my kids, ignored my community, ignored my church, ignored myself, okay? Lived without an awareness. And then I get to my deathbed, okay? What happens on my deathbed? I become aware all of a sudden that I've lived my life for my work. You see what I'm saying? So that's what he was saying, that the fear of death brings into us the realization of what we have lived for. Because sometimes we never ask ourselves, we never ask ourselves what we're living for. The other guy, Eric Fromm, said basically that life becomes almost a continuous escape from death. Life becomes a continuous escape from death. But what is interesting is that people even think about it even further. It's not the fear of death that makes it hard for us as human beings to face it. It's actually sometimes the why. Why? Because on the other side, Nietzsche, who's the last philosopher I'm going to quote, said basically, for humanity, if you have a why, you can bear with any how. I'll give you a very simple example. Okay? The suicide bombers who went into the World Trade Center, they didn't care about death because they had a why. All right? Uh, the soldier who goes into an army, they have a why. So it's not necessarily the, it's the death. It's actually when each one of us comes to their deathbed, which is that's kind of actually, even we don't think about it. We're young. I'm getting older now. So I'm thinking about it. And honestly, honestly, you know, you face it when you face the death of a loved one. That lady who died of that day, okay, it shook me to my core. It shook me to my core of my belief of, okay, even what am I doing as a human being to save lives? Because then you start to realize that there are a lot of things that are happening, and death can be meaningless. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I was talking to Chris, to my son. Um, you know, in his first year med school class, his friends, his group of friends, within, with, they started in September. Within that period of time, one of his friends died in a car accident. A second one um, died in a freak accident, no, sorry, had in a freak accident in a hockey, like in, in playing hockey, a traumatic brain injury in a vegetative state. A third one, two weeks prior to us just coming, committed suicide. And now I'm talking to, you know, my 22-year-old son. And the issue is not that he is struggling with life and death. He's actually uh, struggling with the question of why? Why? It's this meaningless of suffering that is hitting him to his core. And I'm, as a dad, trying to kind of struggle like with him about this why. The problem when you look at why, the question of why, it doesn't always work. There's a lot of senseless, and if death, if death is the pinnacle, yani death is the peak of our suffering, there's a lot of suffering that we look through in life that is hard sometimes to make sense of. And that's my whole point. It is that it's universal. This makes our Lord Jesus Christ extremely unique. Because when you look into all the faiths, you know why? The answers haven't worked that well. The materialists, those who believe only in materialists, tell you, there's no why. Okay? 
It is. It is what it is. It's determinism. It's randomness. It's chance. You were just there in the wrong time in the wrong place, and it happened to you. So just, you know, it is what it is. For a materialist that their life ends when they die, how's the question? Okay? For a materialist who somebody gets a cancer, you know, because of random mutation, bad luck. There's no real cause. For the Stoic, it is basically suck it up and be a man, you know, suck it up and live it with dignity. Don't complain. Swallow the poison and move on. There's no compassion in that. For those who believe in a totalitarian God, part of it could be true, but you realize that those who believe in a totalitarian God, you've turned the suffering into what they call a monologue. God, you're going to suffer, you accept it, you have nothing to tell him. In fact, in their belief, okay, you can't even complain. You can't even struggle with God. You just take it. You submit. There could be some truth to that, but it's very different than our Christian understanding of suffering. Within the answer that was in Job, if you suffer, you suffer because you must have done something wrong. And it's funny thing, it's funny thing that actually Job, even though a lot of times we feel that Job had a different attitude towards suffering than his friends, he's actually, throughout the most time, he had very similar attitude. Because his friends were telling him, Job, you must have a high, a hidden mistake that caused your suffering. It's all karma, you know? And Job was kind of saying, look, I'm innocent, I'm righteous, I didn't do anything, I know myself. And he's fighting with God, and he is right. But because also he still had that same understanding that if something happened to you as suffering, it must be because that God is judging you. Could be a partially true answer. God does judge many times. But it's not the full answer to suffering. The atonement answer. <laughs> Anyone who spoke with me yesterday knows how much I am against the theology of atonement. The theology of atonement basically was saying that we're suffering because um, it's pure out of paying a debt. It's because of its pure punishment. That God decided to punish us with suffering. And then Christ came just to pay the debt to God, the Father, or to the devil, or to whoever. While part of that can be true, that's not how our Orthodox fathers or how our fathers looked at it. The, 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 the sin had a punishment, but suffering was not purely inflicted on us and on Christ because of punishment. So in our Lord Jesus Christ, in contrast to all these ways and philosophies, we find a very different thing. That's the journey I want to take you on now. In the face of suffering, and it's funny that Sayyidina talked about uh, John Vanier, because one of the disciples of John Vanier, who lived in one of his communities until he died, very, very amazing Canadian uh, father, um, Henri Nouwen, anyone who's read to Henri Nouwen knows it very well, 
Henri Nouwen said something very interesting. He said the only possible stance, stance which is like our position, human stance towards suffering, is prayer. The only possible. Because in prayer, you can struggle with God. In prayer, you can cry out to God. In prayer, you can um, almost like cry. When you look at actually at some of the Psalms and what the psalmist is saying to God in those against his suffering, you'll be shocked about these human emotions. In Gethsemane, we find something very interesting. That Christ invited humanity in the form of the three disciples to come with him on a journey of prayer to know how to face suffering. He didn't need the disciples, okay, in that journey of suffering. He didn't really need them in Gethsemane. He was trying to tell them in Gethsemane, your response towards suffering, the only possible human response is a position of prayer. And that's what happened in Gethsemane. In fact, when you think about it for a second, the only human participation that humanity has had in the suffering of Christ is during Gethsemane. Other than Simon carrying the cross for him. But in terms of like what humanity actually did, and they didn't do it great, we don't do it that great, but that was the invitation. Yani, he didn't invite us to be on the cross with him. He invited us to carry our cross after he did. But he invited us to be part of the prayer. Why? Because we start to find that in our Lord Jesus Christ's journey in Gethsemane, he represented divinity and humanity suffering with three things. Now, please pay attention to those three things. That's the journey we're going to be talking about. He suffered in Gethsemane. Number one, the suffering of God with man. The suffering of God with man. From the time of actually creation of Adam and Eve and endowing them with everything that is beautiful, with being intimate with them, to then having, okay, to banish them in their apostasy. That suffering in humanity that was represented that they rejected him. He wanted to be the beloved, but they rejected that. And in fact, within him, you see the suffering of God the Father as the story of the prodigal son, okay, that the father, okay, had his hands open. You realize in that suffering, when the father had his hands open, and you look at this story, humanity told him, you know what? Keep it open, because we're going to put it open, crucified on the cross. You see that irony? God the father had his hands rejected that openness and said to him, you know what, we're going to keep it open, but we're going to keep it open in a crucified manner. So in the cross in Gethsemane, because Jesus is the divine incarnate son of God, he was suffering with the feeling of love of God had to us as we were rejecting him as the beloved. We were rejecting that. Number two, he was struggling because also he's a man. 
He's a full human. He was struggling with the suffering of man with himself. In the original design of creation, God created everything was good, and man said that was very good, and created to multiply and be fruitful. Created man and woman, and he said, and man at that time, she's flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. At that point, man was invited to be the image of love when the self would expand from itself and it would be able to love the other. But the problem with man at that point is that self, just as so you see in the other picture, self and then there's what? Period. <laughs> it ends at me. It ends at me. So instead of going to this creative sense of being multiply and fruitful and loving the other, you became so encroached on yourself. And that leads you to what? To selfishness. To then death. So like in Deuteronomy, when he tells them, choose life or death, man chose death. But here's the interesting thing. Christ in Gethsemane was not crying because he was judging humanity. He was crying because also he was realizing in himself during that period of time, the frustrations of the failure of humanity. Because when humanity fails because of our own self, are we happy? No. We suffer. We struggle. When I am struggling with being a true representation of Christ in my marriage towards my kids, and I fail in that, am I at the end happy? No. Trust me. I suffer. I suffer because of my own failure with myself. Didn't, isn't that, you know, what Paul said? You know, you know, it's like, you know, woe to me. Didn't he say that? Because he was suffering. So Christ at that time, being the divine incarnate son of God, was not only suffering because of what he was feeling as a God, he was suffering because in him, all the failures and frustrations of humanity was showing itself. My own suffering with myself, that I'm not good. Third one, suffering of man with creation. When Adam sinned, because of you, the earth is what? Cursed. Cursed. On the cross, the sun became dark. The earth thundered. Because of the sin of man, the creation is suffering. And within him, you know why? Because he is the creator. Because of that sin of man, he is suffering. During the time of Gethsemane, all that was there. The cry of your brother is crying out when Cain killed Abel. In him at that time, it was the culmination of all humanity in its failure with those three things. God suffering because of man's rejection of his love. Man suffering because of his own failure. Creation and the other suffering because of what man has done to him. But this is the most amazing thing. And this is where, please, please dig into your deepest and try to bear with me. Because this is actually the thrust of the talk. In Gethsemane, when he was praying, Christ turned man's reaction to suffering 
from being a victim to being a lord. What do I mean by that? When man suffers, when most of us suffer, what is our natural response? We make a victim out of ourselves, right? We blame somebody else. Okay? I didn't do that. It was the circumstances. It was my nature. It was my friends. It was my family. It was, you know, I had to do it. So usually in the face of suffering, man becomes a victim. And at the end when man becomes a victim, he blames everyone else and he's shut towards himself. In his prayer, our Lord Jesus Christ turned the victim into Lord. How did he do that? And this is where we go from those three points to a little bit of theology. And this might be a little bit hard, but please bear with me. Our Lord Jesus Christ When we, in the every liturgy, in the prayer of the institution, say, for when he was determined to give up his life, do you think that that determination was a decision of the moment in Gethsemane or was an eternal determination? It was an eternal determination. Okay, how do we know that? And what does that mean towards his suffering? So, St. Peter, in Acts 2, as he was starting to preach, the first time the message of Christ was preached, he was talking to the people in the day of Pentecost. And he tells them in Acts 2, verse 23, this man handed over to you According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of those outside the law. Interesting when you look at those words. It says the plan and the foreknowledge. It's one thing if you say that God foreknew that we were going to sin, okay? And because he foreknew that we were going to sin then he had the foreknowledge that Christ would come and need to be killed on the cross for us. But it seems he's not saying it's not only foreknowledge. It's actually what? A plan. So then the problem is that when you look at our understanding of salvation history, and that's mostly what actually the West has taught us. We think of creation. Everything was great and dandy. It was perfect. It was a bliss in paradise. And then our father, Adam, who just made a really bad mistake, okay, and messed it up for all of us. If he didn't do that, we would have been living in this bliss for eternity, right? No. Because then the fall happened and then the cross. The problem in this scheme is that the cross becomes almost plan B for, for God, it's like a contingency plan. It's like plan A will create them in the paradise. They do very well. They live eternally. And you know what? Everything is fine and dandy. But then when Adam messes, then God has to come up with a plan B. And that's the incarnation and coming to save humanity. But then you find something very interesting. 
One of the earliest church fathers, Irenaeus of Lyon, and I would say that I got most of this part of theology from Father John Bearer's book, The Mystery of Christ. But he pointed something very interesting. Irenaeus of Lyon has a very interesting quote, and that quote is really hard to understand at times. But let's read it very carefully. He said in Against the Heresies, Since he who saves already existed, it was necessary that he would be saved, that's man, should come into existence, that the one who saves should not exist in vain. Let me say it again. Since he who saves, that is our Lord Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, already existed since eternity, it was necessary that he would be saved, which is mankind, should come into existence, okay, that the one who saves should not exist in vain. And according, you know, to St. Arrhenius, that for him... Let's find my, my iPad alert. Um, according to him, God had planned that our Lord Jesus Christ would come on the earth. Okay? And because that plan was in God's plan since eternity, man had to be created on that image. So in his God's mind, according to St. Irenaeus, at least as I can understand it, okay, that man had to then come into existence. Okay? So the Lord can show what the model of suffering would be. So what does then that make in the fall? Well, it's interesting when you actually look at St. Athanasius. He talks about humanity in paradise, not necessarily in a perfect sense. He talks about actually in its infancy, in its naive, in its innocence. And they actually don't necessarily reference the fall as a fall. They call it an apostasy. It's very interesting. It's very different than how the Western world talks about it. Humanity in its infancy was very much like the was very much like the prodigal son where he was living in his father's house. Not perfect, not imperfect, not mature, not knowing everything, but deciding to, in apostasy to leave the father. And the father's response was always to open his arms. It is interesting in the Gospel of John, John... The evangelist is the only one who presents out of the four canonical gospels, presents Christ as a savior, as also as the creator in the beginning. Because he's trying to link to us that how the creation and salvation are very much tied together. Because then in the Lord's suffering, he reverses those three things. In the Lord's suffering, he transforms the victim to the Lord. In him, we saw the depth of God's willingness to suffer for his beloved. In fact, when you think about it, what was the first thing that he suffered for? He suffered because God wanted humanity to know that they were the beloved and we rejected him. What was the favorite term of God the Father calling our Lord Jesus Christ? This is my See that? That's why he was calling him that. Because in him, when he came, he reversed that. Okay? In him, when he came, 
we actually, that's how we sing the hymn of Vayetav on Good Friday. This is also who offered himself as an acceptable sacrifice on the cross. His good father smelled him at the evening watch on Golgotha. It's a very different theology than a punishment and paying a death theology. Is basically, as we were talking yesterday, Christ came because the only possible reciprocal relationship with God the Father telling humanity, you are my beloved, is humanity to tell God back, yes, I am the beloved. And because humanity, none of humanity can offer that to God, Christ had to come. That's how the cycle ends. So number one, he went back that from victim to Lord, he transformed his suffering. In him we saw the depth of God's willingness to suffer for his beloved. And now this is a term that Father John Bear talks about, which is creative suffering. And this is actually where you start to realize in our sufferings how God creates in us a transformation. Because hypothetically, if we lived in paradise for eternity, we would have never had this transformation. But only this transformation happened in our apostasy, like the prodigal son. But then coming back through the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ, only through him, to learn what is this transforming suffering. How does that happen? So you start by the self. You start by your own self. In your own self, you have your desires and love. That love could be a love of being better, excelling, love for your spouse, love for your kids, love to be a better person. You've got your own desires, right? In them, you make some really bad choices. You get enclosed on yourself. You do what Adam and Eve did, okay? Thought of themselves, not about God or the other. You become a cage, encaged in your own self. When the own self becomes within itself, what happens? You end up with death. So then when Christ comes, you have the same thing. And the interesting thing, even in the English language, when you say you've got a passion, you've got a desire, you want to do something, that passion, you say, I have the passion to do that, you realize that that word passion has within it the same root of passe, which is what? To suffer. So within your own love, it comes with its own what? Suffering. Within that love, it comes with own suffering. So that's why, for example, that's my understanding. I may be completely wrong. That's why St. Irenaeus said it was inevitable that Adam and Eve had to, you know, fall. Not necessarily that God determined them, but because basically as humanity, when you are loving without Christ, that love that you have because it's immature, it's naive, it's innocent. It's still in the beginning. It has not gone through the transformative love of Christ. That love comes with its own suffering. That suffering can involve the suffering of you with your own bad decisions. With you with actually trying when you love something, what happens? You want to possess it. I felt that feeling with my kids. Okay, Is that when I love them, I want to possess them. When I love my wife, I want to possess my wife. I want to have her under my control. Well, that's, that's wrong. 
I suffer with that. You suffer because of the evil doing of people around you. You suffer because of nature. You suffer because of disease. You suffer for many different things. But you start to realize that you cannot have one without the other. You cannot have passion, which is your love and desires, without the suffering that comes in through it. If you reject that suffering and you enclose in yourself, you won't be able to love. And that's one of the reasons why I think God, when he asked us to call him, he asked us to call him father. Because there is no father who's had a son who has not suffered. Mona knows this very well. There is no father who had a son who has not suffered. So if we're created in his image, we start to understand that there is no way to love without suffering. You see the point? Your passion comes with your passion. So when we talk about we're celebrating the passion of Christ, what are we referring to? His love or his suffering? Or both? Both. So then when we talk about that, you start to realize that through this, you are being transformed in the fire. That's, there's that imagery in the Bible a lot. Transformed into the fire. That your passions and your desires, instead of being in that top cage, you're being transformed through that love, that suffering of Christ. To realize what happens when you come through the suffering of Christ. You start to realize that you are horrible at loving. You know how I came to this? Because at the end, you come to the point that actually, if it was up to you to love, your own love as a human being is going to end up in death. But the love that goes through the transformation and fire of our Lord Jesus Christ ends up in what? Resurrection. You know how I came to this conclusion? I came to this conclusion actually through my family. I thought, you know, now married for 25 years. I thought that loving my wife should be an easy thing. It should come natural. You know, it should come natural. <laughs> Loving my kids, you know, you know, loving my kids, it should come natural. I didn't realize how hard it is to truly love my wife and my kids. It was actually through my marriage and my struggles with being a parent is when I actually came to this. Because part of my struggle is that when I loved them, I wanted to control them. When I loved them, I wanted to blame them for my own failures. In my love to them, I was Adam. When it, something failed, I looked up to God. You're the one who brought her. That's her fault. It's your fault. I realized it was very hard to be Christ. And only when I went through this, I was able to open my eyes to what Father John Bear talks about, the transformative and creative part of suffering. It is interesting that when the Bible invites us to carry the burden of the world, to carry the burden of the people in the church, to suffer, you know, to be fellow sufferers with God, okay, for other people, you start to realize one thing. There is no way that you can do that until you have a healthy understanding of suffering in your own life. I'm not going to be able to take... Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. 
I'm not going to be able to take, if I'm not healed from my own suffering in a good way, how am I going to carry anyone else? لو أنا مش عارف أحب أقرب الناس ليا هروح أحب أعدائي How is that? And that came to me in a sense is like I'm not even able to love purely, unconditionally the closest to me. How am I even supposed to love my enemies? How am I even going to share with their burden? It becomes really hard. It's funny that according to St. Irenaeus, this model, it was inevitable, from his perspective, inevitable that humanity had to fail in some times, had to fail. And in his model, that's why Christ had to come, because Christ had to come in order to show humanity how does it truly mean to love and suffer while loving. It's interesting how sometimes the world puts it in a much better, succinct way. And <laughs> I found this quote from Moody Allen, who, by the way, I don't like as a person. But I found, <laughs> I found this quote very revealing. Look at what he wrote. And it has a little bit of like a, a satire in it. But he says, to love is to suffer. To avoid suffering, one must not love. But then one suffers from not loving. Therefore, to love is to suffer. Not to love is to suffer. To suffer is to suffer. To be happy is to love. To be happy is then to suffer. But suffering makes one unhappy. Therefore, to be unhappy, one must love or love to suffer or suffer too, from too much happiness. I hope you're getting this down. But even in his satire, he's bringing the whole point. There is no way to love without suffering. And humanity without Christ could not handle that. You see what I'm saying? Humanity without Christ could not handle that. Humanity with Christ can now handle that and then bring back to the whole point of what? The why of suffering. You see what I'm saying? Because then at that point, you're suffering. I'll give you an example. This is a story that is really, you know, sometimes hard for me to, to talk about. But one of my closest friends, um, you know, his daughter literally died in her sleep, um, like 25 years old. And he was very close to me. And I remember when I went to him many days after the funeral, after like, you know, the whole commotion settled down. And we were talking exactly about this. And I was like, and at that time, I just had, you know, Chris, you know, my firstborn. That was about 20 years ago. And I was kind of telling him, Yani, seriously, Ahmed, and it just goes like this? It just goes like this? Wouldn't it have been better for God not to give you the daughter, to save you all this increased expectation. And then in just one second, without even a reason, without even a good cause, without even you saying goodbye. With mood like this, you know what? You offer And then he told me exactly this. 
I would trade everything, everything for just one day that I have her in her life. Because that one day, she taught me how to love. And if that one day that she's here with me, I suffer for the rest of my life for that, I would always take that one day. It gave me a huge perspective as a new parent. At that point, I learned they go hand in hand. You cannot separate them. And by the way, that applies then to, you know, our relationships as marriage. It applies to our relationships as friends. If you don't want to be hurt from your friends, don't make any friends. It applies to everything that you find in life. So that's one of the reasons why I'm saying we, without Christ, we just didn't know what to do with our suffering. But according to Irenaeus of Lyon, that's what he said. So in Gethsemane, Christ taught us how not to fall victims of suffering, but how to be in the image of the Lord in suffering. I liken Gethsemane to a deathbed experience. John is an expert about deathbed experiences. But in some sense, I'm not trying to make it so um, dark. But in a sense, in a deathbed, we realize a lot of our reality and our existence. Gethsemane, Christ was trying to invite us into the mystery of how God loved us so much to the point that he was willing to transform us the hard way. There is nothing in Christianity that is a magic potion that transforms us like this. We would wish to have that. Like a magic potion, you take it and all of a sudden you're transformed into this great human being. No, it comes through the suffering of the wine press. That imagery of the wine press is the only way that humanity can actually be transformed into this creative suffering. And that's why he was willing to go through it. In fact, some of the hypothetical, so, you know, one of the things you find in this whole atonement theory, okay, is that Christ just had to die for us. So a lot of people say, well, if he had to die, why didn't he just die in his sleep and just bear, you know, avoid all the suffering? It misses the point. It's the completely wrong question. For him, Christ had to come and go through the winepress of human suffering that transforms our understanding of love and passion so we can truly learn how to love. So in Gethsemane, he's inviting us to be on our knees. Let me end by bringing what I, end, what I talked with last time. What is our natural stance towards this? First of all, understanding that in our suffering, God only always has a message for us. Number two, don't fall victim to your own suffering. Don't fall victim in terms of actually enclosing in yourself on your own suffering, making a victim out of yourself and making everyone around you to be the cause of that suffering. Number three, believe that that suffering is very transformative. 
Because through that wine press that he went through, we are going through with him. And then number four, your only stance in that suffering is a stance of prayer. Prayer and awe. And you know what we do when we pray in awe? We sing songs. One of my favorite songs on Good Friday, Monoganis. Because we are just shouting as a church. Holy mighty, who by weakness showed what is greater than power. We are just standing in front of him in awe of like this mystery in front of us. Of why would someone as God love us so much to the point that he would come and suffer just to show us a model of how we're supposed to love each other. Because what he was trying to get to us could not be taught by theory, by abstract, by a cookbook, by divine decree. None of that would have taught us this. The only way to teach us this is incarnationally. If I try to teach my kids to love, you know, their siblings, I can preach them from here until eternity. Nothing is going to change. Nothing is going to change. How do I teach them to love each other? Incarnationally. That's what he did. So when we get to Good Friday, I'm inviting all of us to take it a step beyond an emotional encounter with God, an emotional encounter with Alam al-Masih, an emotional encounter with something that is sad. It's more than emotion. It's actually really about us. It's existential. Actually, I invite all of us at that time when you're saying, Holy Mighty, who is the one who showed weakness, what is greater than power, ask yourself that question. What is the weakness that you are showing to the rest of the world through which Christ is appearing? The problem is that us as Christians, sometimes we have that sense of piety, okay? When I'm supposed to be a Christian, I'm supposed to be pious and holy, a holy person. <laughs> so then I think that what I'm showing to other people is a sense of piety and spirituality and depth and reverence. All that is good, fine. But when you look at what the church is actually singing in its awe of the mystery, it's saying that holy mighty who by weakness. And I always wondered about that myself. What's kind of the weakness? It's not necessarily a sin. We're not talking about a sin. It's a sense of vulnerability. It's a sense of openness, a sense of love, because love has a vulnerability and openness, has a weakness. Our love is inviting. So what is my stance to the others to invite them to the mystery of Christ through that suffering? I always wonder about that. What is the weakness which means the openness, the vulnerability that the church can show the world in order to bring them into the wound of Christ. I actually haven't found the answer to that yet. And especially in a society like ours. It's very different in Egypt. We've reached that. As I said, you know, like yesterday, like I was talking about, like just the whole point of awe when you see about the martyrs of Libya or the Botrosia and how the families dealt with that. They've already shown, you know, the weakness means the vulnerability, the forgiveness. What is greater than power? I have yet to find that where we live. And maybe that's a question for a different time. But honestly, until each one of us goes through that transformative power of the suffering and then really is at the cross 
praying in awe of this mystery, dealing with your own failure, your own shortcomings, your own sufferings, whether it is because of all what you've done in your life or because of what people have done to you, in either case, that suffering, Christ has transformed it. Because within him, he's taken the suffering of each one of us and to what has been done to us. From victim to Lord. So, as we come to the end of Lent and Holy Friday, let's not repel from suffering. Let's not repel from pain. Let's think about what will be transformed in us through Jesus Christ. Thank you for your time. Thank you very much, Dr. George. Um, do we have any questions before? Yes. There's another microphone. We can share microphones. It's okay. <laughs> That's okay. That's great. I'll tell it. Go ahead. So you talked about how um, suffering allows us to learn how to love, right? Suffering, you cannot love without suffering. But a lot of the examples were suffering where we are taught how to love others. What about the suffering that is internal, something that has, is happening to you that is, you know, the result of it is not to show you how to love others. It's, it's something that's happening to you. And so my question is, in that case, yes, you're getting closer to God because if you're suffering, it, you, you're working through, through prayer. But then how does it teach you to love others in that circumstance where it's more directed to you rather than there being an external cause? Like, you know, your, your son is suffering, and so therefore you're suffering because you love him. But if it's your suffering your personal suffering. So there's no, thank you. Thank you, Mina. Thank you. Um, there's no question that we suffer a lot in our lives from our own doing, from our own, how we're created, how we're being. Some of us tend to be more susceptible to negative thoughts, to sensitivity, to failure, to feeling inadequate, feeling less than perfect, feeling not loved, feeling, um, you know, feeling with a lot of our shortcomings. That suffering in of itself is a suffering of a person who's trying to come out on the other side in a better state, okay? Through the suffering, when Christ came carrying our human nature, he even carried within it the suffering of our own failures, with ourselves, our self-hatred, okay? And through that, he's trying to tell us, even though you may actually hate yourself, I want you to know that God loves you more than you love yourself. You are still the beloved. When the prodigal son came back to the father, he was failing within himself, okay? Because he felt, he knew he stinked. 
He couldn't even handle that the father was telling him, come. He said, you know what? Don't call me your son. Just call me one of your slaves, one of your manservants. He was suffering with himself in terms of his complete, that he was humiliated by what he's done. He was suffering as the son because he couldn't really like figure out that the father, despite all this, would take him and he's stinking. That was his own self-suffering had nothing to do with the others. But what did the father do in that point? He told him it doesn't matter. He took him in his arms, gave him the robe, gave him the ring, the fatted calf. So in, in Christ and what he's done, he is shown to us that despite our worst moments in our lives, where we have failed miserably, where we feel at our lowest, we are still the beloved. Does that mean that all of a sudden when we feel that we're going to become better people? Not necessarily. We have to go through the transformation. You have to work on your character. When you think about Sam Peter at Sayyidina talked about yesterday, Sam Peter had to work on himself, had to work on his negative tendencies, had to work on his own, you know, pride and wanting to be the leader and just to show it off. But the first point in him being transformed was what? When Christ proved to him, that he remains the beloved. Do you love me? Go and tend my flock. You see that? That was the first starting point. But did his character all of a sudden change? No, I'm sure St. Peter was still the rash, you know, guy with all his passions. But you know what? That's the beauty about God. He takes us as we are. He's just told them and confirmed to them that they are the beloved. You see my point? Yes. Um, sure. Um, so I used to constantly have troubles understanding the concept of when you love, you create. Therefore, God created us, even though he does not need us. Um, it's out of love that he created us. But then the quote that Irenaeus said, um, since he who saves already existed, it was necessary that he would be saved, that he... No, sorry. It was necessary that he who would be saved should come into existence, that the one who saves should not exist in vain. But he's been ever existent. He never needed to prove to anyone that a sense of purpose. Like he, he's ever existent. So I, I'm having difficulty understanding should not exist in vain here. Okay. So when you think about actually why the Trinity? Why the Trinity? Because the Trinity for us is the model of love in its existence. A being who is by himself or herself cannot show that love. Two cannot, you know, they're infatuated with each other. Part of the Trinitarian theology talks about this whole point of love. So then when love happens, love by its nature is creative. Love by its nature is expansive. Love by its nature is contagious. Love by its nature cannot be limited Love conquers death, as Song of Songs talks about. Love conquers non-existence, that what St. Athanasius talks about. Okay, When humanity, in terms of the existence and the non-existence, love has to create, because that's what the nature of love is. So then when God, because he is love, when we say God is love, okay, the creation of intelligent beings as humanity Okay, who is his creation of love and outpouring of love and out of goodness? Okay, in his image, 
The natural response of that image is to reciprocate the love. The problem is that being created, not the creator, learning how to love is a journey, not a click. You don't just switch and you learn how to love. Is a journey. That journey is the journey of humanity from Adam till now. It's the journey of each one of us since you were a baby until you die. But love had to create, not out of need, but out of nature. Let me say that again. Love had to create, not out of need, but out of nature. It's a nature of love to do that. Yes. Doesn't sound uh, almost uh, as, as a heretic. Sayyidna, here, please, if I'm. Yeah, any, make anything wrong, please stop me and say, George, you're like completely messing it up. <laughs> and I, I, I apologize, Sayyidna, for what I'm about to ask, but this is the. Place no, no, to these ask, are really but, good questions. Um, so obviously, we, he wouldn't have created us in, in oneness with nature and divinity with him because he is the Almighty, but then I struggle to understand why do you give me a, a nature? I understand it's free will. But why do you give me a free will that wasn't in oneness? You know, the, the, the only way I can make meaning and reconciliation with the concept of free will is understanding that true free will is that that is aligned with the Father's will. But that's not the, the free will that I've been given. So, so since God is a rational, intelligent creature, love is not just an intellectual decision. It's a relational decision. The very basis of a relation is a freedom. He has to give us the freedom to love him back. Otherwise, it's not, there is no way to love. And that's one of the reasons why when, he, when Christ says, like, eternal life is to know thee, that's the knowledge. So to know God is, means to love him. That's the free will part. That's the choice. He has to create it with us. So it's not necessarily I'm choosing you know, right or left, to eat the apple or not eat the apple. I'm choosing whether to love God or not love him. But then when I realize when I don't love him, I become self-encroached in myself and I end up dead. Dead to myself, dead to the others, dead to him. And then the only way to come back in that path of perfect love, that's the Trinitarian love, is by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ and through the gift of the Holy Spirit back to the Father. You see that? Because... In this, the Father being the being, that's actually the theological you know, explanation of the Trinity. The theological is that the Father is the being, the love. Okay, So for me to get to that, it is by the sacrifice of his son who modeled that divine love. That's the lahna vayetav, okay? the perfect sacrifice. And then gave us the gift of the Holy Spirit and Pentecost. Through the Holy Spirit that we get, we're able then to align ourselves. And at that point, it's not necessarily an intellectual choice. It is a, it's a being. <laughs> love is a being, not a choice. Not just a choice, an intellectual choice. You know what I mean? Okay, like in fact, when you look at the Old Testament, the same word for the sexual relationship between a man and a wife was the same word to know God. Because it was so relational. It was the intimacy of oneness. Okay. Yada, that was the same word. That's how it was envisioned knowing God. It was not intellectual. It was a oneness. It was an intimacy. That takes love. That takes choice. But then we're unable to do that. And that's where Christ came in. Sayyidina, do you want to add anything to this part? <laughs> yes. How does... Just so they can hear in the back. Just All right. Yeah. 
um, how does what we spoke about, about suffering and the transformation through suffering, etc., um, apply not only to personal suffering, but to universal suffering, like we see people suffering, etc. So how do we make sense of that in the context of what you spoke about? I was just thinking of that question before I came today. And partly, you know why? Because he, here's what I struggle, and this is like, I'll probably, I'll just say, I don't have the answer to that. But at least I can tell you I struggle with that, and maybe I'd love to, you know, hear please Sayyidina and Abuna. Because for me, if the suffering of Christ is for humanity, his answer is universal. And it's not just for the moral suffering and the sin, but actually for every being of suffering. I think of just like the 40 plus thousand people who died in the earthquake in Syria and, and, uh, and uh, Turkey. What does Christ represent to them? Well, you know, they don't believe in him. And I don't know the answer to that. But the one thing that actually comes to my mind, actually, is how he dealt with, um, you know, Jairus and his daughter, okay, the widower and the son, they had a cry of help, whether it was in, in a sense of full dogmatic understanding of who he is, nobody even understood at that point who he is, but it was a cry of help, and he was willing to help them with their suffering. Does that, what does that mean for the people in, 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 in Turkey and all that? I don't know. I don't know, this is beyond, I think, you know, I don't know, it's not, I, I can't have an answer for you. But also what I know is that in Gethsemane, he was carrying upon him the weight of agony, of suffering of all humanity. Um, I don't know if our Lord Jesus Christ is here now and he sees something like that, what he will do is gonna be a, a matter of compassion on all these parents that lost their kids, the widowers, the orphans, etc. I don't know. But all what I know is that at least my response to something like that is a response of somebody who has to come out of their shell and figure out a way how to love these people, okay? Even though they may not necessarily fully dogmatically accept what I'm saying, they might see within me, um, you know, Christ. In fact, you know, the famous story about Christians in early time when the Roman Empire started to turn towards their favor, it was not with any of the preaching. It was actually at the time of the plague. And it was at the time of actually the emperor, um, Justin, Justinian, the apostate. So Justinian was a philosopher and he really thought that the Christians were just dumb um, peasants, okay? They were not up to his philosophy. But then he realized at the time of the plague, all the elite of Rome, you know, fled. Okay, all elite of the city fled because they didn't want to, you know, be plagued by the plague. But then he's kind of saying like, you know what, you elite, the ones who are like, you know, the philosophers left and the Christians are coming back, flooding back into the city to care for the sick and the dead, to bury the dead. And with all his philosophy, he says like, you know what, I give them that. Their action speaks louder than any philosophical word. I think we've yet to live up to that standard. Sayyidina, what are your thoughts to some question like that? How does the suffering of Christ relate to something as, you know, an earthquake like this? I, I actually don't know the answer. I'm, I'm just like, this, I, I've struggled with this. And I think you said, like, he, he suffered for all. Like, yeah. Like you know, he suffered for all, and, and he does look with compassion upon everybody. Yeah. Like it doesn't matter, believer or non-believer, he looks with compassion upon everybody. Um, how he deals with those who, 
who who died suffering and how he deals with those who are left behind in suffering and grieving their lost ones. Um, he is like that's one thing we do know without doubt. He's compassionate, gracious, merciful, loving. And so how he's dealing with them is in his compassion and in his love. How that reaches them, if it reaches them, if they accept it, I don't know. But we also have a role, like uh, George said, in that we, with everything we've got, offer <laughs> we offer we offer our love would open again we we don't look at religion we don't look at uh, any anything not not belief system not way of life not none of we offer love always always and that's how christ offered love we always offer love we don't always accept the way of life we don't always accept whatever a, a person believes but we always offer love and perhaps in offering that love they feel at least a touch of christ in us um, although we're not in Turkey, or but even loved ones in America, or just generally speaking, in all the sufferings we see around us, to offer that love and, and to share in their suffering, like not to look at things with a hard heart and be like, oh, that's this group of people. We're one in terms of humanity. We're one. It's it's one one nature um, made in the image of Christ. There's brokenness. Um, and there's 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 brokenness and we need to look with eyes of compassion the eyes of christ see things with his lens see value in people and see the sufferings of people and the needs of people when you look at the journey of lent when you, i'm not going to give a lecture but just look at the journey if you look at the journey of lent all the sundays from the first sunday of lent Sunday of treasure, we're told to look at the unseen. The second Sunday, we're told when the Lord uh, and God tempted on the mountain, half-satisfied eyes. It's all about how you see things. When you look at the third Sunday, the eyes of compassion of the Father, the weeping eyes. So do we look at others with the eyes of the Father that George talked about today? The, the Father is there with his open hands, and we are expected to have those eyes of compassion looking at all of humanity not just you know a close friend but all of humanity with eyes of compassion fourth sunday the samaritan woman some some sinner is there he doesn't look at the sin he sees value beyond the past beyond the label that's on this person when you look at the fifth sunday the paralytic i have no one to help me and Christ basically is calling us and saying, do you see the needs of others? And the sixth Sunday, the eyes that are insightful, the eyes that are capable of seeing what God wants of me. And so throughout the journey of Lent, we can have that mindset and to look at people differently, not judging them, not condemning them, not distancing ourselves from their sufferings, but at least, at the very least, pray. Prayer, and you, uh, and you forgive me for saying this, but I think prayer is always put as a last resort. But really, it should be the first thing we do. And I'm, again, I'm not saying this because I'm a monk. I'm saying this because it's the power that we have. It's the weapon we have, and we don't use it. You know, Sayedna, talking about prayer, I remember one thing. In the beginning of the pandemic, when the churches were closed, 
for like four months. I've never prayed in my life as much as I prayed during the hospital during those four months. Because like the story I started with that pregnant woman that died with her baby, right after I talked to the father, I went back to the call room and all what I could do is just absolutely pray in tears. I had nothing to offer, just to pray. And throughout those four months when I had, didn't attend a single liturgy, I felt as closest to God because of every prayer that I prayed in the hospital at that time for people I didn't know. In fact, I remember, okay, vividly, a guy who was dying and his kids couldn't get to him because the hospitals were closed. And before he was dying, he asked me to pray with him. Okay, it was one of the most touching moments in my life. So to say in this point, okay, sometimes actually our stance with these people, instead of just telling them what's right and what's wrong, is just praying with them and for them. Sometimes maybe the initial reaction. Yes. Okay, I'll come to you. So, um, my question is, I feel like hum as human beings, we have the tendency to be upset about suffering. We have the tendency to be upset about suffering. So, how do we go about being joyful in suffering? That's a great question. And, and to be honest with you, I don't know if we will ever be. And I'll tell you why. Christ was not joyful in Gethsemane. Christ didn't fake it. He was struggling. You know, his sweat became blood. His tears mixed with that. I don't find a way to become joyful, okay? The initial response is what he was in Gethsemane. It's agony. But through the transformation, okay, of the cross and then the resurrection, and it's funny, it's kind of, you know, say, you know I was thinking about like this, uh, like the Irenaeus uh, quote, it's funny that actually when you, when because I just looked at this, like the verse, the verse actually, St. Paul put the resurrection before the sufferings, even though the logical part is the sufferings comes first and the resurrection. So for him, the resurrection is a given. The suffering is going to come before it. Okay, but the resurrection is the promise. You see what I'm saying? So there's no resurrection without suffering. There's no resurrection without the cross or the tomb. So there's no way to be joyful until the resurrection happens. Um, you know, I was having a great conversation with a friend before this, and I found that actually through my sufferings, I couldn't get to the joy, but I could get sometimes to the feeling of bright Saturday, where you are kind of still struggling. You're in the tomb, you're quiet, you're resting. Um, you're struggling with the wounds, you know, you are, you know, like, you've got the coffin, like, in the coffin, you know, you're like, everything's on you. But you have a deep sense in you that resurrection is happening. That's one of the reasons I love Bright Saturday. It is kind of those who are patiently and faithfully waiting for the resurrection of the Lord. Okay, say again. Right, right. So, you know, in some sense, we are living the resurrection, but we're not living it in its fullness. Okay, because that fullness is in the kingdom to come, right? So sometimes our emotions are the emotions of bright Saturday. We are, you know, patiently waiting. We don't know. There's a bit of, you know, just resting, but knowing in deep faith that the resurrection would happen. And it still happens in our lives. So I don't know where any scenario would happen where your initial response to suffering would be joy. Your, so your response after the transformation would be joy. Does that answer that? Okay. I think there are two questions here, and then I think we'll end with those two. Okay.
Great. Um, there's one over there and then one to the gentleman here. Yeah. Uh, hi, thank you for the talk. I actually have two questions, but I don't know what okay. the stance on sure, that's each okay. person. Okay. So the first question I have is how do you differentiate between, like the suffering you're talking about is a holy suffering. It has a purpose. But how do you differentiate between self-induced suffering with like holy suffering? Because sometimes you can be suffering thinking that it's holy, but it's actually just self-induced. So I think that's a great question. I think going back to the point of um, Christ suffering in Gethsemane, he suffered both on our behalf. Because in his suffering, he suffered the shortcomings of Adam, but also the holy suffering. In terms of counseling and clinical guidance, I think that's something where probably being working very close with your father confession and your spiritual guide would point to you because you're right. Sometimes, sometimes our suffering, what we think is suffering from the devils or something is our own doing. You know, it's kind of, I think the story, and maybe say, you know, it was like this story about like, I think some of the monks with one of the, like their, their, their abbot, you know, and, and they were complaining that the demons were like fighting him. And the demon was telling him, it was like, they're just their own doing. You know, I can't remember who's the, the father, but it was one of the paradise fathers. Yeah. Yeah. But it was like their own doings. Like, you're right. You're right. But in the midst of this, I think it's the same thing, which is what? How do we discover that we suffer from ourselves? Is when we compare ourselves with something that is better than us. So in our encounters with our Lord Jesus Christ, we start to look at us as like, you know, I'm not that. That suffers a little bit, but that also makes you want to change. Going back to the example, me being a parent, I'm not a great parent. I suffer with that. I can be easily blame my, the kids. I was like, these kids are like, okay? And it's like, I've done my part. Or else I compare myself with God as a father and his love. And I find that I'm really nowhere close to that. Okay? And then from there, I change. Okay? Sure. Sure. Okay. You shouldn't have given it. Well, I, I, I took it. I was going to say no. But, so, um, uh, so in your talk, you mentioned how if you suffer without Christ, you're going to die. But if you suffer with Christ, you're going to live. And the way that you do that's through prayer, how Christ invited disciples to join him in Gethsemane. Theoretically, that's fantastic. But practically speaking, like we, like we all pray, but how do you practically in your prayer help you to be able to suffer so that you can live and not die? Do you know Great what I question. Mean? So through prayer, prayer, if prayer doesn't bring through you an increase and heightened awareness of who you are, in your dealings with other people and in dealings with your own deficiencies in your character, then prayer is useless. Let me say this again. If prayer doesn't bring you to increased awareness of your shortcomings with yourself and with the people around you, then prayer is useless. Prayer is increased awareness, okay? Um, in fact, when you look at the prayer of like the morning, you know, I just realized today is like, you know what, you know, being mindful, the word mindful is there, okay? Because you have to realize, and I go back to the example of being a parent. When I pray, you know, for my kids, I'm actually being more aware of how I am dealing with them and how weak I am by myself and needing them, God, to change me. That dynamic transformation, okay? Let me, let me tell you something. 
I hope that in our prayers we ask far more for self-transformation than for change of the circumstances around us. Let me say that again. I hope in our prayers we start to increase more to ask for our self-transformation rather than in the circumstances around us. That's how prayer changes us. Okay? All right. I think we're done, right? If anyone has any more questions, I know you had a question, but I can, I can, we can talk after if you want. Or Sure, sure. Please, please, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. It's there in Job 5, 18. Yeah. Where he's... Uh clearly stating for he bruises but he binds up he wounds but his hands make whole yes so like a comment to the question of the suffering of the people at uh, any other tribulations yeah. and even in on all our tribulations i think our prayer should be with a thanksgiving. giving yes because when you give thanks to god in this tribulation is really a transformation to to live with god this suffering Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Can we have a warm, uh, a warm thank you for another very well-spoken uh, talk given by Dr. George Tadros.